The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 13th chapter. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her immediately, she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We normally go to Wisconsin, where we lived for four years, uh, for about a week every summer. For several years, we arrived right after violent storms. Three years ago, we didn't get to go to our friend's lake cottage because a powerful windstorm across the northern part of the state produced a tornado that put a tree through their car. Another year, tornadoes developed a couple days before our arrival and tore through Appleton and the surrounding area, uprooting trees and shredding trees, felling power lines, and collapsing the new fellowship hall at Trinity Lutheran Church in New London, Wisconsin. Miraculously, no one was injured by these 100-mile-an-hour winds. But the church sustained the most significant property damage, and so the newspaper was on hand the following Sunday to hear what the pastor would say about it. The pastor was quoted in the newspaper as saying that God was not in the storms that swept across northeastern Wisconsin in the dark hours of August 7th, just like God wasn't in the wind, earthquake, and fire the prophet Elijah survived in the book of 1 Kings. In the sheer silence, Elijah hears God speak, said the pastor. We're going to hear people say that this was God moving through here and destroying this place, but that's not where I see God at work. We watched and experienced the generosity of people and people coming to express their sympathy with us and to offer their help and to provide food and provide money. Here's where the Spirit of God is at work, And that's where we've seen the evidence of God's spirit moving in mighty ways among us. And I'm sure that lots of people in our community would say the same thing about the tornado here a year ago. I'm not sure that the writer of Hebrews would agree with this pastor's limiting of of where God is at work. 
The writer of Hebrews presents two contrasting views of God. A blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest. The judge of Israel's encounter at Sinai. And he also presents Jesus, whom he describes as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. But he holds up this Old Testament picture of God, not wanting that ignored or forgotten, and also of God in Christ along with it. We should fear God, but our fear is tempered with gratitude and praise for Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a new relationship with God's people. Hebrews' emphasis on this Old Testament picture of a demanding God is not politically correct, but it is also the image of God that's painted in today's first lesson from Isaiah. We'd like to forget this God and God's law and emphasize just the forgiving God that we know in Jesus. We promote gospel and try to ignore the law, but the writer of Hebrews wants us to hold these contrasting images of God together. A study of teenagers in seven denominations a few years ago demonstrated the trouble with emphasizing only the gospel and ignoring Old Testament images of God as one who has high expectations for us. According to this study, most teens in this country hold to a faith that is derived from but not recognizable as Christian. Now I want to say it's not just teens, it's most of us, actually. And the investigators called it moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's a belief that a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. God wants people to be good and fair and nice to each other as taught in the Bible and most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God is not involved, involved in my life except when I need God to solve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. Notice there's no mention of Jesus Christ, the cross, suffering, justice, the church, or the Holy Spirit. This faith requires nothing of the believer. And the authors of the study point out that this is not the traditional Christian faith, and also it's not sustainable on its own because it lacks an emphasis on a community of faith, like this one that gathers. But this faith that requires nothing of the believer is taking over as the dominant faith among us in our culture. And the reason is, well, a lot of it's the fault of my generation, I'll just say that up front. But the reason is that although we teach young people baseball and drill them in soccer and get them music and art lessons, we expose them to faith and, ex and assume they will develop a Christian self-identity by osmosis without having to practice it every week. <clears throat> My generation, you know, paid for all these things, all these lessons, music lessons, art lessons, soccer leagues, baseball leagues, whatever. But they could come to church for free, and they could go to Sunday school for free. They could be part of a children's choir for free. Thirty years ago, a pastor's wife said to me, we should charge for children's choir. They're learning how to sing. And you know what? It would be taken more seriously if we did. That's 
the way my generation and my children's generation thinks. If you have to pay for it, it's valuable. If you don't, it's not. Well, <clears throat> all this is the reason that Upper Dublin Lutheran Church is embarking on a review, review and renewal of our faith formation ministries, which used to be called Christian education. Just the fact that we've changed the name of it tells you something about the fact that the 21st century is not like the mid-20th century. We live in a vastly different environment from even 25 years ago, and it demands a different response. We can't assume that the surrounding culture will reinforce our beliefs and values as we could assume 40 years ago. In my lifetime, I've observed a gradual and subtle shift in our culture from Christian faith being a way of life to it being an add-on, sort of like icing on the cake. Something good if you like that sort of thing, but not essential. And it's fallout from what's described as the increasing secularization of our culture. That means that mid-20th century assumptions about faith formation and church membership are no longer adequate or relevant in today's world. We cannot assume that people who come to us now will know much of anything about the teachings of Jesus or the faith of the church. We can't assume that they have any experience of being part of a community, let alone a community of faith that is rooted in baptism into Jesus' death and resurrection. We can't assume that everyone was baptized as a child or that adults have any religious training or background. In fact, Many of our children, I'm speaking as someone with adult children, will marry people who have no religious background or interest in it, and perhaps will even be hostile toward religious faith. I don't believe that we've prepared ourselves or our children for this changed environment. Our grandchildren might be baptized, but will the promises made at baptism be fulfilled? Will our grandchildren attend worship regularly so they can be formed in the faith? I have eight grandchildren. Two attend worship regularly. Will they learn basic Bible stories? I can tell you from teaching confirmation for years that most students entering confirmation know very few Bible stories. They know the story of the creation. They know the, the story of Noah and the ark. And that's because there's so many children's books about it for sale around Christmas time. They used to know the story of the Exodus, but that was back when the movie The Exodus was on television every year around Easter. But of course, that doesn't, well, they don't watch those channels anymore. The Bible presents various pictures of God. They frequently contrast and even conflict. This has not been a problem for Lutheran theology because it's characterized by holding intention, intention, apparent opposites, grace and faith, law and gospel, judgment and salvation, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, God present and God hidden from us. But all of these are to invite us into faith in Jesus Christ that is a way of life, that is not just an add-on to the life we live. We have died with Christ in baptism. We are linked to his death and resurrection. And the life we live since baptism is a constant dying and rising, being reborn over and over 
as followers of Jesus. This is reinforced in our worship. At the Easter Vigil, we start with a prayer that refers to God as a refiner's fire, something that destroys what is bad in the process of conserving the good. In the proper preface for Christmas, the pastor sings that beholding the God made visible, we may be drawn to love the God whom we cannot see. One of our Sunday prayers of thanksgiving presents opposite views of God as most mighty and most motherly. And the one that I've used most frequently this summer contrasts life and death, growth and decay, the nest and the hunt, sunshine and storm. Similarly, the letter to the Hebrews mingles words of warning and hope, law and gospel. Verse 27 refers to the removal of what is shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Created things are destroyed so the eternal can endure. The writer knows that although we are created in God's image, we do not live up to God's intent. Therefore, we need to be refined and sifted. We need to repent and be forgiven. Our earthly nature has to be destroyed so we can share the joy of eternity. Our picture of God has to be broader than that of one who accepts anything we do as just fine. In a set of prayers for funerals, the Dutch theologian Hugh Osterhuis thanks God for the deceased with the words, Through suffering you taught him obedience and made him a person others could love. Here we have the holding together of these various views of God as judge and disciplinarian, as loving parent and teacher. In baptism, God calls us to sacrifice, to perseverance in what is right and probably difficult, to listening and attending to God's word. Our response is to follow Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, to be disciples who pray, read the Bible, give, serve, and worship, living our baptismal promises as they guide our lives. We worship because we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire, as the writer of Hebrews says. God feels too hot to touch, to handle, Yet God draws us in Christ, showing us love and grace as well as expectations. By following Jesus, the God whom we can see, and through the Spirit, worshiping the God whom we cannot see, we can one day encounter the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.